Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Since 2017, Betsy DeVos has served as the 11th Secretary of Education. A native of Michigan, she has served as chairwoman of the Michigan Republican Party. She spent many years as a philanthropist and activist in the school choice movement. She supported charter schools in Detroit and served on the boards of the Foundation for Excellence in Education and the Alliance for School Choice. Secretary DeVos, welcome. Thank you, Peter. The Department of Education, established by President Carter in 1979, 4,000 employees, a budget. I think the 2020 budget has been announced and it's coming, it's in the range of 70 billion? That's, yes, it's, it depends on the day, but okay. it's right in that range. It's serious yes. money even by the standards of the federal is. government. It certainly is. And according to a statement on the department's own website, its principal duties are, quote, to establish policy for, administer, and coordinate most federal assistance to education, collect data on U.S. schools, and enforce federal educational laws regarding privacy and civil rights, close quote. Okay, now here's the, this is almost an obligatory question. You spent your life before going to Washington as an activist in conservative politics. Mm -hmm. A lot of conservatives, the great man Ed Meese, when he was uh, an advisor to Ronald Reagan, uh, Rick Perry, your, your colleague on, in the cabinet, a lot of conservatives have said the Department of Education shouldn't even exist. Bill Bennett, your predecessor as Secretary of Education, loved his post. But the, the threshold question is, as a conservative, how do you think about the department? And what good do you believe you can do at a place that a lot of your friends think probably shouldn't have been created to begin with? Well, Peter, when I arrived in this job, uh, it was very evident that the last administration and previous administrations had really overreached with regard to the federal role in education. So some of what we're doing is pulling back on those regulatory issues that have overstepped the bounds. And um, we're, we're very focused on right-sizing the role of the Department of Education and the role of education at the federal level. It's important to remember that in K-12, well, in education writ large, only 10% of the funding comes from the federal government. And states really have to drive education. So my focus before coming here mm -hmm. has been to help empower students and their parents to find the right fit for their education. Uh, too many kids are stuck in schools to which they're assigned by their address and zip code. Mm -hmm. And uh, my advocacy has been to free up the system, to free up education, to help students find the right place that they can learn and grow and thrive. So you're right-sizing, I guess, for, for, you're, you're making more constitutionally correct the role of the department and serving as an advocate. Yes, and I, it, there are very many areas that the department has really overstepped its bounds, and we are intent, this administration is really intent on respecting the role of the states and primarily respecting the role of families and parents in, right. the, in the importance of the primacy of their, their role in education. I want to come to your deeply held convictions on school choice in a moment. First, I'd like to discuss what's wrong with in so many of our public schools. Let's begin, if we, if we could, with the contrast between American universities and our high schools. By virtually every measure, American universities are the best in the world. Mm -hmm. There's a recent ranking of the top 10 universities, only Oxford and Cambridge are outside the United States. Uh, we have um, over a million foreign students coming here to study in our universities. High schools, 
The Program for International Student Assessment administers tests in 70 countries. You know all about this. Yeah. Among 15-year-olds, Americans rank 23rd in reading, 25th in science, and 39th in math. How come? How can we have such excellent universities and such mediocrity in our high schools? Well, I would argue that the K-12 system has been protected as a system for uh, decades. And uh, one of your colleagues here, uh, Rick Hanischuk and Paul Peterson, recently did a study of the last 50 years of involvement in education, federal involvement, and, uh, and, and the results that over a trillion dollars of spending to try to improve outcomes for all students, what that has reaped. And the, the result was, or their conclusion was, basically no impact. And so we've been really trying to invest to help the students that are most vulnerable, that need the most help, and yet the results haven't been so, there. So the big, the big conclusion would be the university system is mixed. There are big public universities, there are private institutions, lots and you of get choices. competition, lots of choices. Whereas the mm -hmm. high school system is still, we'll come to this, there are some charter schools, but by and large it's still a pretty monolithic government monopoly. Is that correct? That, that is correct. And right. uh, my focus has been to try to change that dynamic and to help facilitate states to take the lead on that. But right. we, have a, we do have a proposal at the federal level, which... Go we ahead. Talk let's, about, no, no, talk let's, talk about, about, let's talk about that right now. So um, we have a proposal to establish a federal tax credit that states would decide whether or not they wanted to participate in some of those funds. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they would create programs, a, a program or programs for families in their state to access different choices for their students' K-12 education. So we've encouraged people to think very broadly about what this could mean. We've had a lot of discussion around advancing apprenticeship opportunities and career and technical education with 7.8 million jobs today going unfilled. Right. And, uh, and, and there's every, every possibility for states to be really creative about providing different options and different opportunities for students in K-12 years. Here's the best brief summary of your proposal that I was able to find. So will you, if this is correct, excellent, and if it's wrong, please let me know. Th this past February was when you made your proposal public. Mm -hmm. You had unveiled a bill that would provide up to $5 billion in tax credits for scholarships for students to attend alternative schools. What that means is that donors would be a permitted to contribute up to 10% of their adjusted gross income. This gets complicated in a hurry. Yeah, of their tax bill to right. the federal government. And that, right, okay. Now, the So bill, it doesn't create any new program at the federal level. It right. doesn't create any new bureaucracy to administer. What it does is allows individuals or corporations to say, no, we'd like to redirect a portion of our tax bill to the federal government into a scholarship granting organization. That must be approved by go, states. Yes, so and that will go directly to students and their families to make different choices. It's a really efficient way okay. of helping students get better educations. Now the bill, here's what, something I find interesting. The bill attracted a lot of the usual criticism. Here's, here's an example of the usual stuff that you get a lot of. Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington, quote, Secretary DeVos keeps pushing her anti-public school agenda, blah, blah, blah. We'll come back to that. But the bill also got criticized on the right. 
Lindsay Burke of the Heritage Foundation. Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, where you surely must have many friends. You've worked with people at Heritage over the years. Quote, a nationwide federal tax credit program would grow rather than reduce federal intervention in education. Close quote. Betsy DeVos, here you are trying to do some good. You're getting whacked around by the left. Well, you've learned to live with that. But from the right? Well, Heritage is just dead wrong on this. It All doesn't right. create any new federal program, nor any new opportunity to delve into schools and their uh, ability to operate in any way. States would have control over how programs were created. States would decide whether they wanted to participate or not. There's no mandate that they must, and there's no mandate that schools must participate. But the reality is it doesn't create anything new at the federal level other than a portal at the Department of Treasury that would maintain a list of 501c3 scholarship granting organizations. That's the, that, the, you know, that's the, be, the start and the end of it. And so uh, we are very focused on trying to advance this in a way that is very, ultimately has to be bipartisan. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and to, to help states and help uh, policymakers think more broadly about what choices can mean. Let's go back, let's go back to your underlying um, principles about uh, charter schools, about school choice is the mm -hmm. way I had to put it. Um, you gave a big speech at Harvard a couple of years ago. Quote, I came into office with a core belief. It is the inalienable right and responsibility of parents to choose the learning environment that best meets their child's unique individual needs. Close quote. Explain that. Well, I believe that the family, that parents are the primary educator for their child or their children. And, uh, and we have, in, to a large extent, uh, removed a lot of that ability to direct and control by forcing way too many families to uh, assign schools based on where they live. Now, if you have resources, if you're uh, powerful or connected, you figure out a way to find a good school for your child. But if you don't, you're the ones that get left behind and miss out. And so we believe that education freedom for everyone is a critical, critical piece of our future. When you think about the fact that all students that uh, transit through K-12 education represent our future. Mm -hmm. um, we have, as, uh, as uh, Condi Rice and uh, Joel Klein um, identified a number of years ago now, it, this is really an international and a national security issue for our nation. All right. Now, the argument that you get hit with, that everybody who's, who is a proponent of charter schools or school choice generally state it gets hit with is, is the following. Any kid, actually there are two arguments, I think it's fair to say. One, any kid who drops out of the public school system to go to a charter school or a religious school or a private school takes money away from the public school system. So you are, you're bleeding the public school system. That's the first argument. The second argument is that of all the schools you'd care to name, the different varieties of schools, charter schools, religious, private, and so forth, only the public school is required by law to accept all comers. Mm -hmm. All other schools get to accept students that they wish to accept. 
And so they're going to be cherry picking. And the result of Betsy DeVos's very admirable, very deeply felt convictions, the result is going to be to bleed the public school system at the same time that you're leaving it with the students who need the most resources and the most help. Well, we should be about educating individual children, not funding a system. And so when a student elects to go to a different school and the money follows that child to whatever school is chosen, uh, that represents their opportunity for education. It's not about a building or a system. It's about individual kids and doing what's right for them. The other uh, criticism that you've uh, identified there. Um, you've heard all this a few times a, a before. A few times, a few times. Um, I, I like to cite Florida because Florida has really come a long way with uh, reforms that have opened up freedom for many families to choose different schools that have reformed the traditional system. And there are dozens of charter schools in Florida now, as I recall. Hundreds. And, hundreds. Uh, and, and also a tax credit scholarship program that is uh, allowing low-income families to choose faith-based schools or other private schools that they deem appropriate for their children. So uh, the latest uh, number I heard is that up to 70% of kids in Florida are going to a school other than their assigned school, which is a huge percentage. And in, in, uh, when you look at the uh, performance data or the achievement data in Florida, Florida went from 48th on the NAEP exam, the nation's report card, mm -hmm. to the last one being first in a number of categories mm -hmm. and in the top 10 in every single category. And the most important part of that is that the lowest decile student's performance continued to improve along with the upper deciles. So you're not developing a two-tier system where the Everyone is in having an opportunity to achieve at higher levels and to do better by finding the place that's right for them. Okay, so that makes so much sense that we have to ask a little bit about the opposition you encounter. And the figures I came across run as, as follows. Again, you know more about this than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong. 70% of teachers who teach in public schools belong to teachers' unions. There are a couple big ones, National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. They are in many instances required to pay union dues. And the unions, which through the 90s and early 2000s, the teachers' unions, made political contributions that through that period, the earliest data I could find began in 1990, remained at about level at between three and five million dollars a year, has in recent years ramped up so that they're now spending something like 30, between 30 and 40 million dollars a year on political contributions. And if you ask, are they dividing them relatively evenly between Republicans and Democrats? The answer is not even close last year it was as near as spit to 100% of those contributions going to Democratic candidates. Now, you don't call them on that much, as far as I can tell. Don't you, are, sh shouldn't you well, I think open they, your switchblade and fight a little bit? I, you, you always keep it, as best I can tell, you try to keep things at the level of principle and so forth. This is raw politics. 
They're it using is. taxpayer money for special pleading to well, protect and it's a private the organization. They're private organizations yes. that are about adult issues and adult jobs. They're doing an effective job of what you know what they are constructed to do, but they're not focused on doing what's right for kids. And I have uh, consistently maintained that education of all issues should not be a partisan issue. But the unions have succeeded in making it so because they have directed all of their resources specifically, to, primarily to one party. And uh, you know, you're hearing a lot of that now as we listen to a number of the different candidates for president in 2020, talking about basically uh, you know, issues that they know are going to be attractive to the teachers union. Now, I also wanna make sure to distinguish um, the importance of supporting and honoring teachers mm as distinct from the teachers' unions. And uh, I think I've heard from hundreds of teachers and dozens who say, we don't get the kind of autonomy and uh, flexibility or um, opportunity to do the things we know how to do best. They feel very much, many of them, consigned to a one-size-fits-all system as well, which is another argument for education freedom freedom for teachers and freedom for students to do different what you know approach different ways of teaching different ways of learning different environments different focuses and uh, and really to bring a lot more entrepreneurship to the education world so do you feel you're you're at the forefront of a movement that's gathering strength or are you fighting a noble losing battle. Here's here this got my attention. Just last week here in California the, there was a resolute three local chapters here in California of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The national organization has been pushing a moratorium on new charter right. schools. No more of them. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, we have to note that the national organization is funded in part by teachers unions. Three local chapters here in California said, no, no, we want more charter schools. Here's from the resolution by the San Diego chapter of the NAACP. The academic performance, the academic performance of African-American students must be the sole determinant of school district decision-making rather than the financial benefit from public school funding generated by African-American students, close quote. You, you must find it's, that heartening, but are these just little, little tiny rearguard actions, or do you feel that there's some no, momentum I, the, building? The momentum is definitely building. Uh, states have taken big steps, some smaller steps toward giving more parents and more students act, more uh, education freedom. And uh, all the polling data continues to show increasing support for choices and education freedom. If you look at almost any demographic, uh, the vast majority of them say parents should be able to choose the right education setting or environment for their child. Millennials, about 80% of millennials, um, both uh, Hispanic Americans and African Americans in the mid to high 70s as well, uh, 
And when you look at, when you even ask uh, parents of students in the traditional public school, if they would, if, if they're happy there or if they would choose something different if they had the opportunity to, mm-hmm. uh, 60% of them say we would choose something different. Right. Well, that, that, you know, that really speaks to a continued uh, dissatisfaction with what they've been offered or assigned to and a continued movement toward freedom. So... One more question about school choice and the practical politics of school choice. Local chapters of the NAACP, those are African-American mothers and fathers. The students who are disproportionately disadvantaged because they find themselves stuck in mediocre or worse public schools are disproportionately minorities, Mm -hmm. African-Americans, Hispanics. And they tend to vote Democratic. They tend to vote Democratic overwhelmingly. And your people, Republicans, well, let's put it this way. The last Republican governor of California was Pete Wilson. And Pete Wilson did everything he could to promote school choice here in California. And Republicans said nothing doing. Because Republicans, overwhelmingly white, middle class, they were in wealthy suburbs, their public schools were fine. So you've got this problem where Betsy DeVos is championing mothers and fathers who vote for your Democratic opponents. An interesting... What do you do about uh, this? Well, there was an interesting uh, statistic and, and story coming out of Florida in 2018. The gubernatorial election there, Ron DeSantis won by a very narrow yes. margin against Andrew Gillum. Yes. And uh, when you got down beneath the numbers the uh, margin of African-American... Ron DeSantis is the Republican, the white Republican. guy, and a Gillum Democrat, African-American man. Yes. yes. When, you, when you look down at the, the numbers beneath the vote totals, uh, the percentage of African-American females that voted for Ron DeSantis was double what anyone would have predicted or expected. <laughs> and... I believe, and many others believe, it is largely attributable to the fact that Andrew Gillum said, I'm going to eliminate your choices and programs for education um, in Florida. And Ron DeSantis said, I'm going to not only support them, but I'm going to expand them, which, by the way, he and the legislature did last week. Wow. So those moms voted for their kids. I, I believe that that is probably the best argument you can make for why those, why those percentages were as significant as they were. All right. Um, on to the other big issue that has so far defined your time as secretary. By the way, you've been secretary since more or less the beginning of the administration. February that makes you 7. one of the old timers in this administration. <laughs> yes. All right. You and Title IX. This takes a moment or two to set up but it's important, so let me go ahead and do this. 2011, the Obama administration, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights sent a dear colleague letter to all the nation's colleges and universities warning them that they needed to do more to prevent sexual violence among students or lose federal funding. The point of this is that Title IX is the 1972 law that prohibits sex discrimination at federally funded institutions. Okay. Now, I'm quoting the New Yorker magazine, which summed this up better than any place else I could find it. Universities reacted with panicked over-compliance. 
In recent years, it has become commonplace to deny accused students access to the complaint, the evidence, the identity of the witnesses, and to forbid them from questioning complainants or witnesses." Close quote. So something happens between a young man and a young woman. The young woman calls foul, and the young man has no way of knowing exactly what the charges are. There's no opportunity to cross. All right. You, Secretary DeVos, withdrew the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter. This gets complicated, so I keep looking at you to make sure I've got it right. Yes. You've proposed new rules. Under your proposal, schools would be required to employ a presumption of innocence. You have returned schools to the 800-year Anglo-Saxon tradition of presumption of innocence to explain allegations to both parties, to give both parties access to evidence, to hold live hearings, and to allow for cross-examination. Okay, now, to a layman like me, that sounds like common sense. You've simply said to universities and colleges, sorry, you need to do this according to the standards that we all consider just in the Anglo-Saxon legal tradition. But boy, have you been criticized for it. And let me begin with this simple question. The Obama administration sends that letter in 2011. You don't be take office until 2017. Six colleges and universities had their legal departments go through. They'd learned how to live with it. So why did you, why did you, why did you pull back the Obama letter and propose your new rules? Well, let me first say that one sexual assault on a campus is one too many. And I think we need to get to a point of education and prevention but the reality is we have these incidents, and uh, I heard from uh, both those who had been survivors of sexual assault, as well as those who were falsely accused, mm -hmm. and then also from institutions and individuals at institutions that have had to deal with the, deal, the Dear Colleague letter and all of the implications there. And the bottom line was, for all too many of them, it was simply not working. And we determined that uh, we had to clarify and come get to a point of where students all are treated fairly and they know a predictable framework, that institutions will know a predictable framework under which to operate. And so we set about with a very prescribed process of negotiated rulemaking um, or, or rulemaking that will uh, ultimately result in a regulation that uh, that everybody will be able to rely on. So They'll that's know important. The frame. So it's it's a very it's lengthy proposed process. Rules right it's, now. There's it's a, a comment period. Yes, it, it was public comment period. We got over 120,000 comments, and are in the process of reviewing all of those now, um, and responding to those. And after that is completed then a final rule will be issued. Any idea? What's the timeline? Is that a year away, months uh, away? It's months. 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 All right. mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and we think it's important for, uh, for students particularly, but also for institutions to know, know the deal, right. be able to count on it. The uh, American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, says your proposed rules would, quote, make schools less safe for survivors of sexual assault and harassment, close quote. And the underlying argument there, and as best I can tell, really the nub of the, of the criticisms you've been receiving run as follows. That particularly young women, but those who are 
at the receiving end of sexual harassment require special attention and care that the usual rules of jurisprudence are really too rough, too crude, and that unless you, you permit them, uh, you protect them from serious cross-examination, unless you do what the Obama administration had universities and colleges do, you're being unfair. You're just, you're going to suppress the problem because people won't have the guts to come forward and go through this pro So how do you answer that? You know the argument, how do you answer that? Well, again, uh, we can't dive too deep into this because of where we are with the rulemaking. You're not allowed, but, there's um, a certain amount you're not allowed to say. But yes, but um, our goal is to ensure that those who have uh, an accusation um, have lots of options and a lots and, and lot of tools, and that they ultimately uh, will have the control over what happens once they have, if they've ha if they have a complaint to lodge. Um, we're, we're very sensitive to the fact that that is a, a very vulnerable situation, and uh, we want to ensure that they have all the tools necessary um, for them to be able to, uh, you know, proceed as they as they ultimately decide is right for them. Do you think when your rules finally come out, will they have changed such that the ACLU will support them? I, I can't really comment to okay. that at this all right. moment. All right, all yeah. right, trying. All right. Uh, one other question about colleges and universities. Here's President Trump signing a, an executive order on March 21st. Quote, this is your boss. Under the policy I am announcing today, federal agencies will use their authority under various grant-making programs to ensure that public universities protect the First Amendment rights of their students or risk losing billions of federal dollars. Close quote. Donald J. Trump is serious about free speech on campus. All right. There's a big gap be between a presidential statement, even a presidential executive order, which he's now signed, and the rules that have to be promulgated and budgeting processes. Where does this one stand? It's going to have uh, fall heavily well, on you, isn't it, on, on the Department of Education? Be, yes, the Department of Education and the Office of Management and Budget um, are working on what the practical implications of the executive order uh, will end up being. But uh, make no mistake, the president and this administration is very intent on using the bully pulpit to ensure that free speech is respected and um, embraced on campuses. And so the bully pulpit, but also money. Yes. Well, ultimately, the grant making process will have some will have something. Uh, th there will be some uh, reference to the the free speech and the em embracing of free speech is on campus. Free speech on campus, but the uh, the process for promulgating any kind of rules. Um, and is, that's another long one. That's well, it's it's yes, it's. Is uh, that months or years? Uh, that's months. Months. Okay. All right. Um, Student debt. Mm -hmm. You gave a speech on student debt last fall in which you laid out some statistics that I have to say are staggering. They're aren't they, they are breathtaking. Longish quotation, but again, this is important to set it up. This is quoting you. Last year, uncollateralized student loans, which are all of them, by the way, accounted at $1.5 trillion for over 30% of all federal assets. In the commercial world, I'm still quoting you, no bank regulator would allow this portfolio to be valued at full face value. 
only 24% of borrowers, one in four, are currently paying down both principal and interest. This is unbelievable. Nearly 20% of all loans are delinquent or in default. That's seven times the rate of delinquency on credit card debt. The federal government, says Secretary Betsy DeVos, must become a more responsible lender. Close quote. A loan portfolio of $1.5 trillion, many of whom are not paying that back, represents a lousy loan portfolio, but a big political constituency. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be able to do to make sure that the federal government does become a more responsible lender? Well, it's a very good question, and it's a multifaceted answer. Uh, there are things that Congress is going to have to consider, and they're going to have to be—they're going to have to understand uh, what the current reality is and what the downstream implications are uh, to the fact that over 40 percent right now are not current on their loan payments and are. Uh, in fact, many who have gone into these income-driven, they well, want to give no, the money they, away. They have they layered, wanna... yeah, but they've layered and layered multiple different uh, complications onto this whole student loan process. Um, you know, the average student has 4.6 different loans today. So they're, they're working with different loan servicers. Right. The experience is frustrating to say the, you know, the least. And so we have, what we're doing administratively, internally in the department is actually modernizing the whole framework for federal student aid and providing a whole lot more information up front to students. Students will be able to go to um, the uh, College Scorecard uh, website and get program level data around the cost of programs at every institution and what their likely earning potential is. Okay. To Madam, Madam Secretary, that sounds good, but I've got an even better idea. Yeah. Actually, Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts has a better mm -hmm. idea. Quote, I'm quoting presidential candidate, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, we have a huge student loan burden that's crushing millions of families and acting as an anchor on our economy. We got into this crisis because state governments and the federal government decided that instead of treating higher education like our public school system, free and accessible to all Americans, they'd rather cut taxes for billionaires and giant corporations, close quote. Mm. Let's just make it all free. Well, there's plenty of presidential candidates that are suggesting that. Um, I think we ought to talk with two out of the three Americans that don't pursue higher education and see if they want to be a part of underwriting that. All right. Our time is limited, alas. This is, we could go on and on. Here's a last question for you. You spoke last year at the commencement ceremony of a historically black institution, Bethune-Cookman University, mm -hmm. and take a moment to look at what happened. Graduates, would you please be seated? As I said, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. While we will undoubtedly disagree at times, I hope we can do so respectfully. Let's choose to hear one another out. Okay, it says something that they invited you. By the way, it was two years ago, sorry. 
says something good that the university invited you, and I know administrators were there helping to get you through that speech, but look at that. So here's the question. You had a good life back in Michigan. You come from a very successful family. You came from a successful family. You're, you're, you married into another uh, family of means, and you were able to use your wealth to support causes that you believed in. You were a generous philanthropist. You were hardworking in causes that you believed in. And it was a lovely life, as far as I can tell. You don't need this. What are you doing? Why don't you just say, Mr. President, I'm now one of your longest serving cabinet ministers, but frankly, I've had it up to here. See you in Michigan. Because I, I believe every child should have an equal shot at a great future, and that one of the fundamental parts of that is a great education. And um, I've spent over 30 years of my life advocating for that in policy and politics. And this is an opportunity to continue that work at a whole different level and so to you feel make a you're change. Able, that, this strange job in this department that's only yeah. existed since 1970, all, you are able to do good. You're able to make progress. You feel that. I do. I do. I wouldn't be here if I, if I didn't. All right. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, thank you. Thanks, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.